The revelation of Jesus Christ is cosmic, prophetic, corporate, and personal. The revelation of Jesus Christ is cosmic. It's about massive movements of God's power and the demonstration of his authority over the entire created order. It is prophetic. It is the revelation of what is yet to come. That God in his kindness and in his mercy shows us what happens at the end. And why? So that corporately God's people can link arms together and cheer one another on all the way to the finish line to remind each other, brother, sister, we're gonna make it. He's gonna come again. The beast is gonna be captured. The false prophet is gonna be thrown into the lake of fire. The devil is gonna be chained, never to torment God's people ever again. And so we embrace the corporate message of this book. The book of Revelation is cosmic. It is prophetic, it is corporate, and it's personal. The revelation of Jesus Christ was given to one man on one island, to John, as he's on exile in the island of Patmos. And it's written to churches with individuals in them who are trying to figure out how do they make it. Not just as a church, that's a thing but how they make it every single day in the days and weeks of their lives as they face difficulty and opposition. I wanna remind you that the letters to the seven churches, all of them had this kind of exhortation. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. To the one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over nations. To the one who conquers, he will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name, his name before my father and before his angels. So there is something about this book. Cosmic, yes. Prophetic, yes. Corporate, yes. Personal, yes. Today we round the corner. As Eric said in our study of Revelation, verse, chapters 19 through 22 show us the glorious end of this beautiful revelation. Over the last six weeks, we've been looking at some of the darkest passages within the Bible, and especially within the book of Revelation. And now, in Revelation 19, the dark clouds begin to break, and the sunshine of God's future plan begins to gleam bright and beautiful. Today, what I want to do is take Revelation 19 and Assuming that you understand that the book is cosmic and prophetic and corporate, I want to apply this book and this chapter personally. Revelation is designed to give you individually, as a Christian, hope so you can make it another day, another week, another month. And in this chapter, I want us to think about 
this particular statement that will also serve as our outline, that Jesus makes me joyful, Jesus makes me complete, and Jesus makes me safe. Revelation 19 speaks right into your world, Christian. If I could just apply this brother or sister right into your life to push this into your soul today to remind you, listen to me, Jesus makes you joyful, Jesus makes you complete, and Jesus makes you safe. That's what Revelation 19 is all about. Let me help you understand where I get this from the text. And I'm pushing my outline toward application by design. First, Jesus makes me joyful. You know, joy isn't just one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is the dominant emotion expressed by God's people when they really understand who God is and what he's done. In other words, when you get it regarding who God is and what he's done, joy is unstoppable. The new heavens and the new earth are going to be full of so many things, but one of the things that the new heavens and the new earth are gonna be so full of, I think it's gonna blow your mind, is overwhelming, eternal, nonstop, deeper than you could ever imagine joy. If there's one word in the Bible that captures all of this, it's the word hallelujah. What a word. I hope that this sermon, if nothing else, puts that word back into your vocabulary this week, that you'll even find yourself saying, hallelujah. Traveled to different parts of the world, sat in a lot of worship services, not in English, having no idea what's being said, seeing people nod their heads and wishing I understood their language. And yet what's fascinating is having been all around the world, there is one word that I always understand in the service. It transcends time, space, language, culture, people group. It's the word, say it with me, hallelujah. It's amazing. Do you know what it means? It means praise God. The sound of the word, hallelujah, has roots in the Hebrew language. It literally means just praise the Lord. Halle, praise. Yah, God, praise God. Hallelujah, praise God. And whether it's in English or whether it's even in Greek, what's fascinating is the translators of the Bible and even the preserving um, use of it in the way in it, throughout the world, no matter what language that you're in, people revert back to the original way that it was said, hallelujah. It's how God's people sounded when they were full of joy. So it's fascinating to me that this word hallelujah is preserved. And I wonder if part of the reason is because the meaning of the word joy is connected to how joy sounds. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
In other words, joy just isn't a word. True, it has meaning, but joy has a sound to it. It has a holistic, all-encompassing perspective. Hallelujah. Let me illustrate this for you. We, we sang the song, There's Joy in the House of the Lord. There's, there's a couple different ways you can sing that. You can sing it like you mean it. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And you can also sing it. There's joy in the house of the Lord today, but we won't show it. There's joy in the house of the Lord today, but I'm not going to show it. I know for some of you, the most joyful thing you did was get out of bed and get here, and you couldn't sing because your heart wasn't as joyful as you wanted it to be, and the rest of us kind of pulled you along, and that's okay. But there's something wrong when God's people consistently sing, joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God. Like, that doesn't fit. Why? Because joy is more than a word. It's a posture. It's an attitude. It's a perspective. And in verse 1, John's heart is overwhelmed with what he hears and what he sees. After this, I heard what seemed to be the voice, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. They're all saying it together, hallelujah. And this praise of God is connected to three particular words because salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So the hallelujah, the joy, comes from understanding that salvation and glory and power belong to God. What do those words mean? Salvation, it means that God rescues people, that he's gracious to them. Glory, that God is full of perfection and holiness and beauty, that he's powerful, that God is mighty. But notice that these words don't just describe what God does, these words belong to him. They describe who he is. In other words, salvation and glory and power define the very essence of what makes God, God. It's what makes him praiseworthy. So mark this, God's people don't merely praise God for what he does, God's people praise him. They say hallelujah because of who he is. The worthiness of God and the way that it should flood your soul is directly tied to God's essence, not just his activity. And that's really important because there are some times when God's activity doesn't make sense, especially when you're going through hardship and suffering and difficulty and you can't trace all of the purposes of God. And when you can't do that, why could you say hallelujah? Because glory and power and salvation belong to God. Getting this right is really important. God's activity flows from his identity. Who he is then results in what he does. By the way, if you're a Christian, that's also how you need to think about yourself. Who you are before God defines what you do. Or Simply, identity informs activity. Why is that important? Because everything in our world goes the other direction. 
We live in a world where activity defines identity. That's why when we meet people, we say, hi, what's your name? Where are you from? And what do you do? Why do we ask that? Because in our backwards evaluation of value and identity, we attach activity with identity. And from a Christian worldview perspective, it's absolutely backwards from how the Bible defines who we are. That's why this moment on first day of the week is so important because this is a reminder of who you are. Verses two and three connect joy to God's deliverance through his just and true judgments for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more, they cried out, hallelujah, and the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Notice here that God's being praised and the people are full of joy, not just because of who God is, but also because who God is has now affected the entire created order in judgment. The overthrow of Babylon is complete and eternal and never again will God's people have to endure the schemes and seductions and oppression of Babylon. The corruption of this system is over. The wicked spell has been broken. Imagine a world, just imagine a world with no temptation, no greed, no lust, no envy, no manipulation, no oppression, no anger, no injustice. Imagine a world where evil has completely lost its power. It reminds me of a moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Father Christmas appears. And after a long time of it always being winter and never Christmas, his appearance, along with the melting snow, begins to signal that Aslan is on the move and the children find themselves joyful, but they don't even know all the reasons why. It's the joy of realizing that everything has changed for the better because the king has returned. That's the idea. Look at verse four. Back to the 24 elders, the four living creatures, they fall down and worship God who was seated on the throne, and they say, amen and hallelujah. There's a, a wave, a ripple, if you will, that happens from the multitude in verse two to now the throne room that's gonna go back out. Verse five, and from the throne room came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants and you who fear him, small and great. This, this appeal is meant to be universal and it's the reverse of the curse where the creation worshiped itself and now there is this joyful realignment of oh, this is the way that life is supposed to be. I was meant to say hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Can I remind you if you're a Christian that this is just the first little taste that we get of the future that Jesus has purchased for us. This purchase that was made before the foundation of the world. Look at Ephesians chapter one, 
The Apostle Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved Underneath the life of a Christian are deep, eternal, sovereign truths that become the means by which we understand how do we operate in the world. Joy is rooted in what is true about God. Your joy, Christian, is rooted not in circumstances, but it's rooted in what is true about you because of Jesus. Christian joy is something God does in you because of Christ. So the question I would ask you at this point in the text is, do you know this? Do you feel this? Do you embody this? Because Revelation invites you, if you're a Christian, to remember Jesus makes us joyful. Amen and hallelujah. That brother got it. That's right. (laughs) Second point, Jesus makes me complete. What happens next in the text is just incredible. Verses six through nine talk about the marriage supper of the lamb. And it's a heavenly gathering that signals the completion of God's redemptive plan. It's the celebration of, of the bride and the groom now brought together. It's a wedding, it's a wedding reception. Now, let me be clear, I know that for for some, the idea of a wedding or a wedding reception can be a bit triggering. Maybe you had a bad experience or had something kind of wonky happen. Maybe you're no longer married. Maybe you've never been married. So I realize this metaphor, like all metaphors, can have some personal challenge with it. But what I want you just to imagine is imagine a perfect wedding reception. The food, the people, the joy, they're all what you would have dreamed. And this is the moment that's in mind in Revelation 19. It's a meal, it's so fascinating how fellowship's meals were so important for John. Do you know the Gospel of John, the first miracle that Jesus record, that John records that Jesus did was at a wedding. And the last moment in the Gospel of John, the last scene with Jesus and his disciples, yeah, he's on a beach and he's cooking the disciples breakfast. There's something personal here, something intimate, something relational. And in verse six, John hears Another sound, he describes it like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And here it is again. Hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. And once again, people are invited to worship. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine 
linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We've seen before the people of God described as a bride. This was a common way, in particular in the Old Testament, to talk about God's people, like in Ezekiel 16. We're gonna see this image come back again in Revelation 21, when Jerusalem comes down from heaven, described like a bride adorned for her husband. And what's fascinating here is the marriage of the lamb is in this moment, and the bride is described as having made herself ready by virtue of her righteous deeds. She's clothed with fine, bright, and pure linen. This is the culmination of God's people as they have faithfully endured through hardship. It's the kind of thing that Peter has in mind in 2 Peter 3 when he says this, since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? What you have to understand is the part of the reason the revelation is written is not only for you, Christian, to know what's gonna happen in the future, but so that knowing that you can live right now for the glory and praise and the fame of Jesus. You can see the beast system. You can see the seeds of the antichrist mentality. You can see the enemy's lures, his attractions, and the way he's trying to woo you off the path of following Jesus. And you, by God's grace, knowing what Revelation says, and knowing that he's coming, and knowing the ark of God's plan, can say, not me, not in my generation. I'm not going there. I'm gonna remain faithful to Jesus all the way to the end. And the church links arms together and says, we're gonna make it, let's go, because the King of kings and Lord of Lord is coming back. So this book was meant to help you know what to talk about tomorrow and what you look at. And how you respond and how you deal with feeling like you're exiled and so different than everybody else. This book is meant to help you and to remind you you are far more complete than you could possibly imagine. The devil is gonna tempt you with, you need this in order to be complete, you need this in order to have everything you want, and at the core of who you are as a Christian, you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, you have garments that are pure and clean and righteous, and all of those things, as we'll see in a moment, are not just things that you have done in your own strength, it was the very power of Jesus in you that made it possible. We find, verse nine, the angel says to him, write this. this. Apparently this is important because we haven't heard him say, write this in a while. And he says, blessed, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Wait a minute, those who are invited, I thought they were there because of their Righteous deeds, like they, it almost sounds like they earned it. No, 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 no. You gotta get this right. You're invited to the marriage supper so that you can be righteous and so that you can have 
linen, pure, white, and clean. Nobody gets to the marriage supper because you did good works on your own, nobody. The only reason you're at the marriage supper of the Lamb is because God, before the foundation of the world, knew you, loved you, called you, sealed you, made you faithful, and out of the overflow of your love for Jesus, you persevere all the way to the end, but don't you for a minute think that you persevered because you were strong, or because you were mighty, or because you were spiritual, or because you were godly. The only reason any of that could be true is only because Jesus is the one who rescued you, called you, sealed you, and made you righteous. We've heard it before, haven't we, where the Bible says that God's people are called and chosen and faithful. That's Revelation 17. Just to be sure that we get this point clear, verse 10, John fell down at his feet to worship him. It was overwhelming. But the angel said to him, you must not do that. (laughs) I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. It's, it's like the, the angel realizes he's just a UPS man delivering a, a birthday present. <laughs> you know, no one hugs the UPS driver, thank you so much. He's like, I'm just, I'm just delivering the goods. Like, he's, but there was something, don't miss this, there was something about what John heard. John knows this. But there's something so overwhelming about the truth of what was being communicated, about the overwhelming joy and the deep significance of knowing the completion of God's plan that led John to fall on his face in awe of what he had just heard. Church, this is the completion of Jesus' work. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a beautiful celebration of the grace of Christ and the perseverance of the Holy Spirit. Anyone who is at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the only reason they're there is because in this lifetime, they understood they were a sinner, they needed Jesus, and when they turned to him, the Holy Spirit filled them, and through trial and difficulty and hardships and temptations and all sorts of highs and lows, God's spirit kept them faithful all the way to the end. So do you have some work to do? Yes, you do, but do you do that work alone? No way. Jesus makes us joyful. Jesus makes us complete. Here's the third, Jesus makes me safe. The third and I think hopeful lesson here in chapter 19 is that the kind of victory that Jesus brings is so complete so that his people will know they're safe. Let me explain why. In verses 11 through 21, we see our Savior, we see Jesus not hanging on the cross. No, he's coming on a white horse with a sword that's coming out of his mouth. It's a glorious image of this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a glorious image, as long as you're on the right side of this King. Some of you here today, you're not yet a Christian. Listen, friend, I don't know how much more emphatic the Bible can be to invite you to come to Jesus than Revelation 19. In verse 11, we see heaven opened And the first thing that John sees is this white horse, a symbol of victory. And then the imagery that follows is stunning, but it's also a repetition of some of the things that we've seen before. 
We learn first about his name and character. He's called faithful and true. We saw that in chapter three and verse 14. Again, this describes the essence of who he is. He's faithful, he's true. The text also tells us that he judges and makes war, but he does it in righteousness. So here is this king who is coming in order to make wrongs right and to crush the enemies of God. We learn about his appearance in verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. We've seen this before. On his head are many crowns. We've seen this before. He has a secret name. Why a secret name? Because even what we see here, the Bible is teasing it out that there's even more that you don't know about him. You think you know Jesus now? Just wait till you see him. You think this revelation is amazing? This is just what God has allowed us to know. He's wearing a robe dipped in blood, verse 13, seems to be a symbol of his death. He's called the word of God, meaning he's the revelation of God. And according to verse 14, he's leading the armies of heaven. The armies of heaven, the same hosts that were arrayed in their fine garments at the marriage supper are now following him on white horses too. He's full of authority, he's full of power. He has a sharp sword in verse 15 that comes out of his mouth. And take note that he conquers not by virtue of what he does physically, but rather he merely speaks the word and he's the victor. He rules with a rod of iron. Verse 14, or rather 15 and 16, he executes full authoritative judgment of God. And then in verses 17 through 21, we see a rather graphic account of what happens to those who are in rebellion. An angel, in verses 17 and 18, summons the birds of the air to gather for a massive slaughter. Imagine vultures. And the angel says, vultures come in. And circling overhead are ominous birds as a symbol that something bad's gonna go down. Verse 19 tells us that the beast and the kings of the earth gather to fight, about, to fight against, rather, the king of kings. And verse 20 tells us the outcome. The beast is captured, so is the false prophet. And notice the description of the false prophet. This is important. Who in the presence, or in his presence, had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. That deception is over. The beast and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire, and verse 21 tells us that the rest of the people who sided with the beast are also killed, and they're killed merely by the words of the king of kings. Notice, there's no mention of a battle, because there isn't one. The king just says, I win, and it's over. The power of the Savior, his name, the name Jesus, is no match, no match for the powers of darkness. And so we see here that Jesus makes us safe by prevailing against the evil opposition that's in the world. It's, it's kind of a grisly scene, isn't it? 
We've got birds eating the flesh of those who have died. In fact, verse 21 ends with, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and the birds were gorged with their flesh. Why does the Bible talk this way? I think it's because God wants us to know these, these people are really dead. Like they're dead dead. Like birds are eating them dead. Like they're not, they're not coming back. Like this judgment is final. It's over. And Jesus has prevailed. When I was studying this text, I just couldn't help think about the beloved Psalm, Psalm 23, how it connects with this chapter. Listen to it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now listen to this part. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. That's what's happening here. All kinds of enemies, the beast, the false prophet, Satan himself, the hordes of evil, all the temptation, the oppression, the wickedness that's in the world. And Jesus spreads a table and he says, come eat, drink, be joyful. All of that, I got it. He anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus makes me joyful. Jesus makes me complete. Jesus spreads a table before my, enemy, before my enemies. He makes me safe. So let me ask you, if you're a Christian, which of these three words do you need? Some of you are like, all of them. Which of, which of these three words do you need? Start with joy. Can I remind you, joy is rooted in what is true about God and what is true about you in Christ. Your joy is not connected to circumstances. Christian joy is something that God does in you because of who Jesus is. And maybe some of you just need to be reminded, oh, I need to plug my soul into that socket. And to be reminded, that's where real joy comes from because Jesus makes me joyful. Maybe you need to be reminded that God through Christ makes you complete, that Jesus rescues you from your sins, he transforms you so that you are obedient and faithful, that Jesus loves you more than you can possibly imagine. It also means that, Christian, you're gonna make it to the end because the spirit of the risen Christ is within you and there'll be highs and lows, there'll be successes and failures, but at the end of the day, being faithful through the challenges of earthly living means that you know who your king is and you were bought and purchased and loved, and he makes you complete. You may feel the wrath of the beast, but the call of this text is to keep trusting the one who is faithful and true. You're not faithful and true. That's not your hope. He's faithful and true. He makes you complete. And finally, Jesus makes me safe. He judges. He makes war and righteousness. He comes to make things right and to crush 
the enemies of God. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus makes me joyful. Jesus makes me complete. Jesus makes me safe. Hallelujah. 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 Jesus makes me joyful. Jesus makes me complete. Jesus makes me safe. Hallelujah. Oh, dear Lord, as one of our faithful sisters used to say, amen, and praise the Lord. We receive this word, and we drink deeply from the well of your goodness to be reminded that you are for us. You can make us joyful. You can make us complete. You can make us safe. And so we say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. There is joy in the house of the Lord today, and we will not keep silent. For our sake and for your glory, we will not be silent. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.